לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamud in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shammet. Joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salmachector Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, somewhere in New York City on sabbatical. It's great to see you on the And we have, we also have a guest, guest, the dog, Dora Pooch. Okay, Vayakel, Vayakel, this we would be remiss if we didn't say this was an amazing Parsha. Only for the word, the first word, Vayakel. Vayakel means to congregate. I want to propose an idea, which is that this, that we, we know that this Parsha is taking place after all of the events at Sinai. So after the events at Sinai, Moses went up, the people worshiped the golden calf, Moses came down, shattered the tablets, Moses goes up again, and as we saw at the end of last week, Moses comes down and he is glowing. He's just, he is literally the... He's the, on fire. He's on fire. He's totally on fire uh, uh, in, a, in a kind of metaphorical way, but he's glowing. Um, he is in a way the representation of the, the burning bush. That is, he's not being consumed by the fire of God. And it's at this point that we, we know, it, the, the Torah gives us a bit of a, a gear shift here. And, and it says, Vayakhel Moshe et kol adat Yisrael. And so Moses gathers the people of Israel. And I want you to, to, to define Vayakhel and maybe go into different examples of that. And also, I want to ask how it fits in the context here. So Barry, go ahead. So Rashi makes the point, a grammatical point, that it's a hifio verb, which we often identify with causation. So Moses, by speech, gathers the people rather than the cow, the, the simple action, which would be to gather with his hands. Now, you have to imagine if you have 600,000 fighting men, that it would be pretty hard to gather them physically. It would be much easier to use your voice. But I think the point that Rashi is making is that the gathering serves in a, some kind of an additional purpose. And it provides a counterpoint to the gathering that took place the last time this verb appeared, which was in the Golden Calf episode, where it's in the passive, Ayikahel. And it suggests that when they gathered for the Golden Calf, that it was not exactly a gathering, but more like in the massing, that it was helter-skelter, it was without causation. But here, it is with intention and direction in order to hear the word of God clearly so that the people know what to do and will subsequently do it at the appropriate time. So so in other words, like the golden calf is a mob, basically. It's a, it's a, a yeah, unruly mob. An unruly mob, and, and as we all know, the it's January sixth of the Bible, <laughs> the mob, 
The mob has its own legitimate political discourse. Okay, fine. The mob has its own character, and it can go out of hand. It really went. It it went out. It went berserk. Okay, so Jeremy, talk to the content of what Moses is trying to convey to the to the congregation here. What are they? What is it? What's what's his content here? What's his message? Well, the first thing that we're going to say is the very first words. Even though this is any long section of of, uh, of material that is about the construction of the Mishkan, it's taken up the better part of five parshiot, uh, massive, massive, dis, you know, seemingly disproportionate quantity. The first thing is talking about Shabbat, and, and Moses says to says to the uh, community, "Let me just open up my book here." Sheshet Yamin Tasem Lacha. Verse. These are the things. Yes, Six days' work shall be done. And the seventh day should be holy to you. Shabbat Shabbaton Ladunai, a holy day of rest to the Lord. And interestingly, it's both Yelachem Kodesh, it's holy for you, and it's Shabbat Shabbaton Ladunai, and holy to the Lord, uh, which I think is a is a a fabulous explanation of the experience of Shabbat. It is partly an act of worship, and it's partly an act of human enjoyment. You, you know, it's a feast and a celebration. Kol um, yumat. Uh, any violation shall be any violator shall be put to death. Well, I need to talk about malacha. Malacha is the technical term that we find in 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 Breshit, and when God creates the world. You know, Vaichal Elohim he, he ceases all his melacha. And here we're going to be in a in a whole chapter of melacha of of the creative work that's done. Go ahead. This this paragraph concludes with one specific instance of melacha. You shall burn no fire in all your inhabitants on the Sabbath day. You know, the the Mishnah and Tractate Chagiga says that. That the Shabbat laws are keharim tuluyim b'sa'ara, mountains hanging by a hair, because there's there's halacha merubah. There's lots and lots of rules, mikra mu'at, and a very small amount of a biblical text. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of rules about Shabbat. Bible doesn't give a whole lot of them specifically. Um, Jeremiah talks about the prohibition of carrying in and out of the city of Jerusalem, but this example of Burn no fire in all your inhabitant in all your habitations on the Sabbath day is is probably the most prominent example and and like you know the people got uh, the the commandments about Shabbat when they got manna back in in uh, Exodus chapter uh, sixteen or seventeen um, and the key thing about manna is you can't gather it on Shabbat six days is out there the seventh day is just not out there I think that the prohibition on burning fire is like is associated with that. It's about food preparation. Um, get ready for Shabbat. Get ready for it. Work on Friday. Prepare prepare your feast. But then on Shabbat, do nothing. Well, what um, is and, it about about fire and why and why? I mean, this this it's 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 a, a challenging question. Why this this uh, commandment this prohibition is singled out here. I mean, we have, we have tractates and, and codes that are, you know, organized around what you can and cannot do. And we can go into that, into all the minutiae of it. But, but here it's like fire, no fire. 
Well, we didn't start the fire. We didn't. <laughs> so you could say there's Yeshmeyayan and Eshmeyayan as well. Okay. But Guys, what I'd like to suggest is the importance of fire here, I think, goes to a poetic image. I'm reminded of uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's great comment that Shabbat is a tabernacle in time. So we have the tabernacle on one hand, which is sacred space, and we have Shabbat on the other hand, which is sacred time. And the nexus is fire. We identify fire, especially in the Torah, with the altar. The sacrifices, almost all of them, have to be burned on the altar. And the commandment here is not to take the fire of the altar into your home. That sacred space must remain sacred space. And if you're not there, you cannot be part of it. But you can be part of sacred time wherever you are because that's how time operates. And so the command here is to respect the sacred space by joining, as it were, the sacred time wherever you happen to be. So I, I think that I think that the I think that the fire commandment to me is really resonant about the the mitzvah of no food preparation on Shabbat, um, and I, I I think that that's you know one of the one of the principal uh, ways in which. I personally, but I think us generally, classically, have have uh, experienced this: is that Shabbat involves preparation, and then enjoyment. Like you got to work. Misha toreach be'erev Shabbos yochal b'Shabbat says the Talmud. Like only those who labor on on the eve of Shabbat will get to will get to enjoy Shabbat. And I think that that's that's empirically true. Um, you'll get more out of it. But I also think that we have to imagine, first of all, that it was laborious to produce fire. Um, and, and so part of the commandment not to burn fire is, is to avoid the laboriousness. Also, I think fire, especially in an ancient context, was, would have been all about transforming something from state A to state B. And you, know, you, you, you turn potential energy into heat energy, um, you turn raw food into cooked food, uh, you know, you have to, you're going to have to use fire to, to produce any number of other, um, you know, human artifacts. The, the rabbis, by the way, look at this first paragraph in the parsha, which, which then proceeds into all of the other kind of executions of the Mishkan, is to tell you that Shabbat, as a paradigm of Judaism, supersedes the, the creation of the tabernacle. Right. It's brought out first before all the execution of the tabernacle stuff to tell you before before the execution of all the Mishkan stuff to tell you that the Mishkan, building the Mishkan is very important, very important, but it's not more important than Shabbat. Shabbat supersedes. Don't don't burn your fire to make your dyes, to to make the metal, to do all of that stuff um, on Shabbat. Shabbat comes first. So I think that that the claim that you're not going to build the Mishkan, but but you are also not going to do any other of the transformations mm -hmm. that suggest human mastery over, over the raw materials of the world, that to me is part of what's going on here too. So I, I want to go and, and, and imagine a different interpretation, which is that, that you know, and, and you, I pick up on something you said, Jeremy, which is that, you know, we, we don't live around open fire pits. We don't live on, around the hearth uh, the hearth that that we that you know we we make a, you know we have artificial uh, fireplaces in our in our homes you know the closest that we get you know in our own 
settings is maybe a gas stove and maybe an oven, but people really depended on fire. And, and we can't underestimate the, the value of having a controlled fire in your home. And not only that, but way, way deep in the deep evolutionary past of human evolution, fire obviously was essential. It, it, there are people, evolutionary biologists who say that it is the discovery and the use of fire that 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 is what made us human that 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 contributed to to our being hu human and that being able to control fire being able to ignite fire is the the ultimate in in terms of human creativity and the ultimate in human potential of destruction and so not being able to do that and to and to restrict you from uh, interacting with fire means the most potent element of creation and destruction is no longer accessible to us. And the way we do use it on Shabbat is, well, if it's, if it's set before, if we don't manipulate it, you know, we can have a burner on, provided that it's controlled. We can keep the oven on, provided that we don't, you know, up, turn it up and down the knobs or whatever. And, and those, you know, those of us who, who um, practice uh, our Shabbat without using electricity, you know, and that's a whole debate as to what, what constitutes electricity. Is electricity really fire? And that, that became a, a really important halakhic debate. But it's, it kind of resonates with the idea that um, we are doing something and that, that something can be completely destructive, cause tremendous destruction and danger and terror. And that can be, you know, the source of, of great human creativity, as you, as you mentioned. Okay. There's one, there's one more big element here, which I, I would suggest that uh, any anyone who's listening uh, or watching our watching our conversation has certainly done any number of times in their life, and that is the lighting of Shabbat candles. Um, the the Torah says, "Burn no fire in all your habitations on the Sabbath day." Uh, I'm not familiar with Karaite writings. Karaites were were a non-rabbinic Jewish path. They still exist uh, in, in Israel, and they were in the Middle East, and even some into Lithuania. Uh, the Karaite tradition interpreted that to mean you can have no fire burning on in your homes on the Sabbath day. And so they did not, you know, have any candles or anything else. And if they lived in the north, they froze. Uh, whereas the rabbis interpreted to mean lo tevaru esh means don't ignite the fire, but you can let it continue to burn. And so our practice of Shabbat candles is actually a polemic going back to Mishnaic times that there were two interpretations of this verse. And, and some of the ancient Jews considered it to mean you can have no fire burning in your house. And some of those ancient Jews, the people that we have come to follow, the rabbis, said, no, no, it means ignite no fire de novo, but you can you can ignite it just before Shabbat. In fact, not just you can ignite it, you have to ignite it just before Shabbat to bring some light and some beauty into your into your homes on Shabbat. So it, it, early on, it was more for practical purposes than aesthetic purposes. Of course, Shabbat candles have evolved in our own homes to to fill a, an aesthetic and spiritual uh, uh, purpose. You know, um, it's beauty, as you said. Okay, so so well, I, I want to add. I wanted to add something here. So, Elliot, when you were talking, you were emphasizing how fire is so intimately connected with what makes us human. And 
I think what the commandment is trying to suggest, and I was thinking about this, you mentioned the creation of the world, the creation of the world, which is done by God, obviously, there's no mention of fire. There's no mention of fire. Right? In either the first story in chapter one or the continuation in chapter two, the first suggestion of fire is the sacrifice that Cain and Abel are going to make. And I think that perhaps the commandment not to light a fire, not to transfer a flame with in connection with Shabbat is not to make us less human, but to remind us that fire in a religious sense ultimately comes from God. And we are trying to be godlike in on Shabbat, perhaps more so than during the rest of the week. And that's why we refrain from fire. And that's why it has that single importance, which we don't associate with any of the other malachot for Shabbat, which are clearly human activities. Well, interesting that, that all ancient mythologies have some kind of uh, story about the origins of fire. And so uh, the fact that we would detach from fire also has a kind of you know, anti-pagan purpose to it as well. Okay, so so the Parsha deals with the construction of the Mishkan. We get the gathering of the uh, all of the raw materials, which is quite a, a, a lengthy catalog. And then we meet again this ex extremely um, extraordinary personality, Bitzalel. Reu kara Adonai b'shem Bitzalel ben Uri ben Hur Yehuda. See. Moses says, almost reiterating what Moses, what God has said to him early on, chapter thirty-one. Call God has called by name Bitzalel, uh, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He fills him up with the spirit of God. This guy Bitzalel is a, is, I'm, I'm saying he's a genius. There's something. There's a genius quality to him. He has the Ruach Elohim, which is an echo again to creation. He knows he has wisdom and understanding and knowledge. It's all in the area of, of craft and, and the hand and the, the, the ability to use and to create things. I, I maintain that B'Tzalel, you know, this, this name, it's, a, it's an echo. It's a bit of a pun. He is B'Tzalem Elohim. It's not Bitzel El, the shadow of God. It's the image of God. This is a guy who has so much talent, so much raw ability. And, it, and it's like, you know, there are people like that who just um, once a generation or once every, I don't know how many generations, they, they populate our world and they're able to create, they're able to fashion things simply out of the sheer power of their genius. Um, do you want to, you know, reflect on, on I mean, B'Tzalel to us is, is a, you know, the name, of course, is associated with all sorts of creative enterprises, but the idea of creating things of beauty to worship, we've talked about it in the past uh, a little bit as well. Um, and it, and how you know, that requires a certain endowment, a certain... It does, it does. And, and you know, we don't have in Jewish tradition for any number of reasons. It's not zero, but we don't have a great architectural tradition. You know, there's the Duomo in Florence and the, uh, and the, you know, St. Peter's Basilica. St. Peter's or, or, or the, or even the Kippat Hasela, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem or any of the other, those, those cultures, Muslim culture, Christian culture, uh, you know, Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul, 
they were like, they were, they had a lot of wealth stability and they stayed there and Jews moved around a lot. And we didn't, we didn't build buildings this way. Um, there, when I was in Poland, perhaps some of you have been to the Poland Museum in, in Warsaw, Jewish, the, the hundreds of years of Jewish Poland, there's a, a reproduction of a, a synagogue. The, the synagogue was, of course, destroyed by the Nazis, but they had a, a very, very full photographic record and they rebuilt this gorgeous dome of a Polish synagogue. But we don't have zero, but we don't have a lot of a great architectural tradition. Our artistry is mostly words. Our greatest artists have mostly been, been poets and writers, and we love that and we should love that. But Bitsala is a is a is a call to me, you know, like into the into the paths not taken of you know who who would have been our Michelangelo's, uh, like you said, you know, this is this is a rare genius. He's portrayed in the Torah as having this rare kind of special, like Michelangelo could do this stuff, and and Leonardo could do this stuff. Um, he he could work in multiple media and and just make the world a beautiful a beautiful place of stained glass perhaps or or, or you know the, the 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 jewels and the metals and the fabrics and and so i i really am i find myself very moved to think that we have a have a, a un, un you know a tradition not not taken of building beautiful buildings um, in the gemara in tractate brachot they associate betzala you know like i said jewish tradition our artistry is mostly words and we have in, in Jewish mystical, you know, in the, in the Kabbalah and other mystical teachings, that the world was created by words, right? And so in the Gemara, in, in Tractate Brachot, it says, Betzalel knew how to uh, combine the letters by which heaven and earth were created. So his creation of the Mishkan was like a parallel to, to uh, you know, to, to make the letter combinations, to make this building come alive in the way that God made the whole cosmos come alive. You know, it's so it's so interesting. It's such a dynamic within Judaism. I'm thinking about, you know, Chaim Potok, My Name is Asher Lev, which is really one of the great Jewish novels, you know, of the last century. And Chaim Potok, also most underrated Jewish writer, I think. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so we have to start all We're going back to, to, to Chaim Potok, okay? And, and this tension in Judaism of, of art and the artistic spirit and, and, um, and, and that, it, you know, Jeremy, when you were talking about this, I was thinking, like, if we have people who are watching us or listening to us who are artists, who are, you know, people who are engaged in calligraphy or in, you know, and they think in a different way, artists, of course, you know, look at the world and they see things that are much different then, you know, most of us who just, you know, involve ourselves with, with words, you know, they're, they're alienated. Are, you know, well, I mean, I, I'm looking at my, my screen here. So I have things of art in the back. These are Jewish pieces of art, you know, but, but that's the, that's the exception. No, I mean, they, they don't have a place. Yeah, it, with us. It, it, it is. And, and, uh, I, you know, it's funny because Islam, you know, Islam, medieval Islam had this like incredibly intense prohibition on representational art. And there's a story in in like Muslim Agadah that this is, I, mean, I read the story one time in a book about Islam that 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 Muhammad, one of Muhammad's wives gives him this pillow in which she has embroidered a picture of a deer on it. And he was not a very gracious recipient of this gift. And he yells at her and says, you know, 
what can you make the deer come alive? No, we don't make representation. Only God makes representation. So you have this wonderful, uh, um, you know, tradition of all the all the non-representational Islamic art. But obviously, it doesn't stay forever because because they they do make representational art and it's gorgeous. We also have, of course, you know, the the prohibitions on graven images, and we weren't as as uh, intense or machmir about it, strict about it as, as the Muslims, but we never really got great at it until the modern era. Um, and you have, you obviously have Modigliani and Chagall and people who are great modern artists who, who are Jewish, but we don't have that Catholic tradition or that Muslim tradition. And it's, it's a loss. And, and look, so, that's, what, that's what Potok was dealing with in, in that book, you know, which was you know that that what what's my vocabulary? What, what and that's why you know he has Asher Lev paint crucifixes and 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 you know to the reader who it's 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 stunning. It's absolutely you know it's such a it's such a great evocation of the conflict that that here he has no vocabulary, there's no visual vocabulary to to express these things. So Elliot, I, we have to come back to your comment about B'tselem Elohim, which yeah. is the image of God. Yes. We don't believe that God has an image. Yes. So if God has no image, how can we have representational art? If we are striving to be like God who has no image, then we cannot find... No, this is easy. It's easy. He, he's a creator. So what I want to suggest, yeah. though, is that it's related to Betsail El, because a shadow also has no image. And there's okay. a tension between B'Tselem Elohim and B'Tsel El. I had a teacher many years ago when I was a student at Spurtis College of Judaica who said that for the rabbis, anthropomorphism, for many of them, was not really a problem. Because after all, we see the world as human beings, so even God we imagine with human attributes. The problem was not with seeing God as a human, it was with people seeing themselves as God. And when you were talking earlier about B'Tselel, the word that came to mind for me was charisma, which originally was a person who was touched by God or the gods. That was the original charismatic. And B'Tselel is filled with this Ruach Elohim because certain creative forces we identify with God. We do not see them as solely the province of a human being, that the great story of the Bible for us, I think, is creation, perhaps, and Exodus second. That it is the creative act of God that we're trying to emulate, not necessarily the redemptive act of the Exodus. And that creative force cannot be as solely a human element. So I, I want to just differ with you only in the sense that that's exactly what makes Bitzalel the image of God because he's a creative force. I think that's what you were saying, you know, and, 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 and it's precisely because he's not a charismatic figure. He says nothing in the text. There's nothing that he's only a doer. Vayas, vayas, vayas. He, he is the one who's always doing, but there is one little, little hint that he has some other aspect of social genius in that he's the organizer. He knows how to do this. He knows how to deputize people. He has Well, the question is whether he knows how to do it or God allows him to do it. 
So you're right. So it's the ability to direct is what God has given in his heart. Verse 34, right? Done. The guy who never gets the first building in the whole, you know, it's like produced by Bezalel, associate producer, because here, in a sense, for as the role of God, and the holy of is the role of Adam. Well, maybe it's like maybe it's like um, Moses and Aaron. You know, you'll be to him Elohim, and he will be your mouth. Maybe maybe Bitzalel is the is the is the producer, and and Ohaliav is the associate producer. But I want to say one midrash about about those two guys. Bitzalel ben Uri ben Chor the Matei Yehuda. So he's he's number one. Um, he's from the tribe of Judah. Judah is going to be the tribe of King David. It's where the kingship is going to come. Um, and Rizal ben Uri ben Chor. Chor is not explicit in the Bible, but is, uh, again, midrashically speaking, um, Chor is Miriam's son. So he's Miriam's great-grandson, according to that thing, and, and part of the tribe of Yehuda. In contrast, Dan is... Um, a, a, is the child of I forget Zilpah or Bilha, one of the one of the handmaidens. He's like the last tribe. Um, the midrash says that they took society's most prominent in in the form of Betzalel and the least prominent tribe in the form of Ohaliav and brought them together to do the work together. Which I find is just a very enchanting little midrash because right, but yeah, we have to remember that Don I think is the second largest tribe after Yehuda. Qu- so we have represent what. Quantitatively, in the number of people. Yeah, I think they have sixty-two thousand in one of the censuses, and Judah has seventy-four thousand. I, I had no, I confess to not. So they take the numbers. one, you know. So these are the two heavyweights. Uh, well, the the mid the midrash that I'm going for has has most prominent and least prominent. So whatever. Yeah, it's, like, it's also north and south too, and 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 that the south. Yeah, north and south. Role. Yeah. Sorry, the north has a subordinate role. To, to the Judean, that 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 obviously makes sense. Speaking as a proud Judean, of course. <laughs> or is you from the Great White North up there? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so let's just do one more footnote here, or or one note, which is so the people the people start bringing their stuff. They bring in lots of things. They they're bringing so much stuff. <laughs> They're bringing so much stuff, so much raw material. Um, and then Moses says, the, Send out the notice to the people in the camp. Man, woman, do not do any more work to raise money, raise anything for the, the fashioning of the sanctuary. So we should all have this problem, right? But Jeremy, you just had the experience of, of, of fundraising. And, and, and I spoke about this in Shul a couple of weeks ago related to other matters. But, you know, the, the idea of giving, it, it takes on its own life. When it gets going, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, one can only sort of laugh and realize that Moshe Rabbeinu would have lost his job in the development department of any Jewish organization if he said, well, we've raised enough money, we can stop now. <laughs> it's like, no chance of that. Who ever heard of such a thing? Haven't you ever heard of a rainy day fund? Come on, man. Oh, really? The endowment. Capital reserve. Capital reserve. You got, you got to, it's never, it's, it's an endless fundraising. But um, first of all, 
uh, I, I think one could be a little homiletical and say that in this religion, we do have centers, public centers, public places of, you know, ho public holy spaces, public places of worship. And by the way, the homes are also public, uh, are also ho holy places of worship. They're just private. So at a certain point, maybe Moses is managing the proportions of we've got enough for the public spaces. Now all of y'all in your own families have to have to devote to maintaining your private spaces. We don't want to bankrupt you. We want you to be able to have Shabbos dinner and send your kids to Jewish day school and send your kids to camp. You need to do all of those things. It's a great sermon. It's a great sermon. So, so to add, also, just to add also, one just, point. Just, here we go. Just, just add one, one thing, which is, which is that the, um, what I think is a challenge, a challenging thing for me to understand. Um, you know, just after a big fundraising campaign at Anche Chesed, you know, back in Truma and here in, the Parsha talks about the motivations and the, the people who are and the people who are generous and the people whose heart moved them. You know, I'm a little anxious about the sense that we want gifts from people who give the gifts in the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Ah, this is, this is, I, I can see how it can get nasty if, if the public people are saying, um, I only want the gifts if, if you're on the page with me and not for your own reasons. I don't know. That, they could be complicated. So I want to get to that in a second, but let Barry go. go. So what, what I find so fascinating is that the language of this Parsha echoes the language of the golden calf. And I think that when they brought their jewelry for the golden calf, they had a goal in mind. And Aaron, you know, threw everything into the fire and behold, the calf walked out, presumably. And here they understand that the last time they did something like this, they sinned grievously. So they're going to be told to stop because they know that they're not the ones directing this. Yeah. And so that's I'm, why they give until they're told to stop, I think. I think, you know, back to Jeremy, there is a, there is a, there's something that takes hold in in people you know and look obviously generosity is a great thing but 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 when it when there's momentum to it 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 becomes a, a force it's almost an unbridled force and and sometimes you know the responsible thing is to say whoa 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 you, you know you need to stop because otherwise you're going to break because people when when this element of their lives is unleashed and un uh and unfettered it can it can be i don't want to say it can be destructive but it can go in, in, in lots of different directions. I, I'm just, you know, I, I mentioned this in Shul a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm stunned by the fact that there are these live YouTubers, you know, and, and that people, they have a super chat. They, they press a button and, you know, send $10, $20. And I'm watching a, a video and like, people are just like throwing money. They're throwing money in it. And it seems like it's a frenzy because they're, they're so motivated by this, you know, the, the, you remember the Jerry Lewis telethon, okay? There was, when, when it got going at three in the morning, you know, did you ever stay up to watch that late? <laughs> it was like, there was something there. And it's like, you know, there's, there's, we, we're all caught up in that spirit. Okay. So we're, you know, in a way we gotta, we gotta come. Well, you know, like, just, just say one thing, which is that, um, you know, I, I joked before about Mo Moshe would lose his job in the development department, but, you know, we think about Jerry Lewis and I, I don't really, I never did watch that, but let's assume he did a lot of good work. Um, I also just been watching this this show about this fraud named uh, 
what was her name? Uh, the, the show is called uh, Inventing Anna. It's been a, a Netflix show about, this is a real life story about a, uh, a kind of an insane young woman who, who like talked her way into like high fashion and really rich people. And she defrauded people for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And she was going to build up this, this big private club, but it was all a sham. And she just defrauded, you know, tons of people. That insatiable need for more, 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 more money. And maybe, you know, my joke notwithstanding, Moshe actually gets huge props for saying, we've got a plan, we yeah. need this, but we need this and only this. And we don't get all, you know, uh, what was the name of that preacher? Uh, Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, you know, it's like, you know, it just became about the money. It has to be more money. And Moshe is not about the money. It's about the Mishkan. Absolutely. And once we've got the Mishkan, we don't need more money. So that's, that. it's, it's, it's reined in. It's saying that there's, there's an impulse here that's out of control. We're going to, we're going to put this, we're going to put the boundary here. We're going to, we're going to put the, um, the guardrail for your, against your own, your, your own inclinations, which can go out of, we can you, you can go wild too on this uh, anyway. And if anybody from Ancha Chesed is, is listening, we still need some help for the Rav Chesed. There campaign, you go. But... Okay. And if you want to support Camp Ramah or you want to support any of her shuls or Solomon Schechter, you know, please do so. <laughs> All right. Well, we need to put the boundary and the bow on this. It's Shabbat Shkalim. We didn't really talk about Shabbat Shkalim, a separate uh, parsha that that begins the four special parshiot. Can you believe it? This is, I think, our anniversary, Shabbat. It's our anniversary. Uh, very close. Very close. Well, it's been great so far. And we continue. And we're going we're gonna to leave it here for now. So Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Here, and we'll see you next week on the next edition of Parsha Talk.